You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2017. Today's episode is titled, Going Low Raises the Bar. The bottom line for most organizations is profit. This is the metric for evaluating the value and importance of everything. People, processes, value proposition, initiatives, and so forth. Other considerations, such as whether the value proposition is truly beneficial or whether major character flaws in people matter, are easily overlooked if the organization is making the profit the senior leaders desire. Management must humble themselves, go low, before God to raise the bar of excellence. Accordingly, management must recognize that God is engaged in His creation and grants favor when individuals and organizations work in alignment with His will and ways. Therefore, humble management will seek humble workers. Such workers will enjoy the favor of God in their work and display traits such as submission to authority and teachability. An organization built on humility as a seminal virtue will enjoy God's favor, which will be manifested by healthy, efficient, and productive individuals and organizations. Going low will raise the bar of excellence and produce a profit as well. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Raising the Bar. Well, this morning, we want to continue our study of the book of James, and we want to turn our attention to James chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. Uh, but to set this up, I want to just read verses 1 through 4 of James chapter 4, and just remind you some of the context. In James chapter 4, James is continuing his conversation about wisdom, living in the wisdom of the Lord, as, a, as opposed to living in the wisdom of the world. And so he uh, turns his attention to quarrels and conflicts. You know, these are common things that happen uh, to us, you know, in the workplace and really just in the culture in general. So he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Obviously, your passions here is a reference to your fleshly passions. You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, and that word there for adulterous people literally is feminine form, so it really he's saying you adulteresses, which in a a culture like the first century was a, a double insult. Uh, the first insult was that you're accused of being adulteresses, adulteresses a, fem, a female adulterer. And secondly, you're being accused of being, you know, your relationship with God is not pure. It's defiled. It's unfaithful. So these, these Jewish people, these early believers, would have been very offended with this or very easily could have been offended with this. It's interesting how James does not hold back. We live in a culture where we would not dare talk to Christians in, a, in language like this. I cannot imagine any pastor, any church leader accusing his congregation of being spiritual adulteresses. That just would be so over the top. But yet James is in your face. And that's a big picture for us here. Because James is just about to unload the full load. And the text we're going to be studying this morning, some theologians believe, is the most challenging text in Scripture relative to what it is to be a Christian, what this really means. And so James is setting this up, you know, with this this term, adulteresses here. 
And this accusation, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Which means when you adopt the world's ways, the world's practices, when you do your will according to your ways, when you live contrary to the truth that's in Christ, you are a spiritual adulterer. You are an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is the setup now to verses 5 through 12. So let me read this, this section, and then we'll go back through it and talk about it. Verse, verse 5 of James chapter 4. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, James uh, delivers a very, very uh, intense presentation of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it is to be, to walk in a Christian lifestyle. Christianity demands a response. It demands obedience to the will and ways of God. It demands to inform how you live in every area of life. Christianity is not something that's to be taken casually. You don't just get a ticket to heaven and think that's all you need from Christ. No, if Christ has regenerated your heart and you've been born again, then the evidence, the greatest evidence of that reality will be you now live as a servant of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of your life, and no longer is it you who are living, but it's Christ who's living in and through you. So that's the profoundness of the idea. Now, many people know that. They've heard it. They've re- you know, had messages on that, but they probably have never heard a message out of James chapter 4, verses 5 through 12, which is so in your face with what this means. So let's look more deeply at what James is saying here. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Well, the first thing we run into uh, in looking at this text is we run into a problem. And the problem is, this appears to be a quote from the Old Testament, but theologians have been unable to find that quote. They don't know where it is. So it is an unidentified text. Now, what some theologians have offered as an explanation is that what James is doing here is synthesizing Old Testament teaching. And that very well could be, because we know that uh, we know that our God is a jealous God. We know that from the Ten Commandments, uh, where God is pointing out to the Israelites that 
you know, if you go worship idols, you know, that will not go well. There'll be judgment because God is jealous. God does not tolerate, you know, us being pluralistic. Now, we're in a culture where pluralism is the politically correct view. You have to be, in the name of tolerance, you have to, you have to be accepting of all these different worldviews. But the reality is Christ is saying, I'm not tolerant. I do not accept you worshiping anyone else. It is not acceptable. And so I think that's probably a fair way to see this is clearly that seemed to be a theme in the Old Testament. And of course, Christianity is built off Old Testament scripture. And what we have in the New Testament is now is a set of glasses that we now look at the Old Testament through. So James is telling us how to see Old Testament scripture in light of Christ. And he's quoting the text here. Clearly, he had something in mind. Now, you'll notice the English puts this in quotes. Of course, there are no quote marks in the Greek language. So it's very possible that James could be synthesizing an idea, a teaching, an understanding that was common among the early Christians that God was not pluralistic. Now, also keep in mind in the culture that... Uh, that James is in, which is very Roman in nature, the Romans were very pluralistic. That was very common for them. But Christ is very standing up strong and saying, pluralism is not acceptable with me. So that, that's going to give us all some heartburn because that's going to be very, very politically incorrect today to take that view. Well, going on, he says, but he gives more grace. Now, that's very interesting. He gives more grace. That implies he's already given us grace. Well, he has given us grace, and he's given us grace in two ways. He, first of all, we are saved by the grace of God through the, the Holy Spirit regenerating us, but even prior to that, we, we physically exist by his grace. He breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve, and that's a picture of what he does with each one of us when we are physically born. So, God gives us this grace, this incredible grace that we're living in, but there's going to be even more grace. So reading on here, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So one of the ways to think about this more grace could be seen in Luke chapter 19 in the parable of the minas. In that parable, you remember the servants were each given a mina, and they were told to go and steward that mina until the master returned. And when the master returned, the master would call them into account and say, what did you do with my mina? And the first one said, well, I took your mina and it now increased to 10. He didn't take credit for it. He basically said, your mina, you know, is now 10. He's pointing out that that mina was yours. I simply was an agent for you and I tried to make wise choices and you multiplied it tenfold. And then, you know, there was another one that took one and turned it into five. And there was a third one that took one and did nothing with it. And the penalty on that third one was the one minor he had was taken from him, from him and given to the one that had 10. That's a picture of more grace, more favor, that God is taking someone who is walking in his will and his ways and giving them more capacity, more ability more understanding, more opportunity, enhanced favor in what they're doing. So this is the more grace he's talking about. So now how do you walk in this more grace? Well, the way you do it is humility. 
Therefore, it says, referring to scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is out of Proverbs chapter three. So we know where that text is from. That's pretty easy to make that connection there. So God, what God is saying here is that as you humble yourself, and humble means to get low, get low in your perspective, get low in your demands, get low in your will, get low in your ways, means they go down. What happens is you are opening the door for more grace in your life because you are being humble before him. So now he's going to start into a series of imperatives. Starting with verse 7 through verse 11, he gives us 11 imperatives. Remember, the imperative mood in the Greek language was a way that grammatically you could make a command. In English, we make commands largely by voice inflection. We don't really have a way to grammatically do it. We have to do it with our, our tone. But in the Greek language, they could do it in the grammar. And so it makes it easy to recognize what is an imperative and what is not. Now, sometimes in the Greek language, they might use the indicative mood, which is a mood saying this is a fact, but they would use it in such a way that, that the context would certainly infer that it was an imperative. But other times they would just use the imperative mood and it makes it, no, there's no question, this is a command. This is a directive. Now, in a day and time when the focus of Christianity is so much on grace, it's hard for us to hear this. Hard for us to focus on the reality that we have commands. Now, we have to keep in mind what the real gospel is, what we now understand it to be in light of Christ. The real gospel is you have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of work, so no one should boast, or no one can boast. And that means that you are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you did nothing to deserve it, and you did nothing to make it happen, it's sovereignly done by God in you. But once you have received that regeneration, what should your response be? The only proper response now is obedience. So now in Christianity, we obey not to get regenerated, not to be saved. We obey because we are saved. We obey because we have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have to understand that's, that's how James sees it. So when he goes into these imperatives, he's not trying to put us into law as a way to gain acceptance with God. We're not under law as a way to gain salvation. We are, we are obligated by virtue of the gift of God in our lives to be his servants. This is about lordship. This is about stewardship. So we have now 11 imperatives, 11 use of the imperative mood to direct us into critical commands that we must follow if we're going to walk humbly before God. So first he said, submit yourself therefore to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. As we go through this, you're going to see there's three times where he's going to tell you that there is a promise associated with you obeying. Seven times he doesn't mention that promise, but three times he does. So the first one he mentions is resisting the devil. And if you do that, he will flee from you. That's the promise. The next promise he gives is the next imperative. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, this is the principle that some call the principle of reciprocity, that God reciprocates as you do right things toward God he does things that you might consider are right toward you. 
So if you draw near to God, you don't want God to pull away, do you? You want God to reciprocate and pull near to you. And that's what he says he does. As you, as you get close, this whole thing about drawing near is about getting close. So as you get close to God, then he says, I want to get close to you. I'm reciprocating your humility. So this is a way to get more in tune with his will and his ways, get more inclined to, to what it is that he's about, what his purposes are about. So this is the mandate. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now he turns to some comments, some imperatives about how we should draw near to God. What should our state be? And he specifically says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So remember, he's back to this, these very negative ways of referring to people. I mean, how many times have you walked up to someone and called them a sinner? Or how many times have you walked up to somebody and called them double-minded? We don't normally do that, uh, particularly in a setting where we might, might consider to be a gathering of the Christians. We go around and talking about people being men and women of God and brother and sister and things like that. We don't call them adulterers and adulteresses. We don't call them double-minded. We don't call them sinners. We don't do that. It took James to do this. Talking to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and numerous times in the book he refers to them as brothers, and one time in this text he will do it. But he's also pointing out, you are not walking the talk. You're not living the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so, therefore, you're living like a sinner. Now, I know positionally you're not, but practically you are. And the double-minded thing, that's a, that's a unique thing to James. It doesn't show up in any other uh, New Testament scripture. It shows up in James 1 and James 4. And double-minded is when you are saying one thing, but you're not really believing it. You're double-minded, therefore. So we are charged here to approach God humbly, first of all, with clean hands, which is a reference to our external deportment needs to be in order and reflective of Christ. And pure hearts, which is a reflection of our internal relationship with Christ, needs to be pure. It needs to be healthy. It needs to be strong. So these are qualifiers, imperatives that we have if we are going to then press in and draw near to Christ. Then he gives us three imperatives that are just kind of mind-blowing imperatives. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. And you should immediately be saying, wait a minute. I rejoice in the Lord. I delight in the Lord. I am so grateful. You know, I count it all joy that I know him. Yes, those are all true. But one of the things that we must recognize as Christians is that we are called to make distinctions. Paul told his spiritual son, Timothy, that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now that means making the right distinctions. You have to make the right distinctions. If you can't make the right distinctions, you will be confused. It's very important that you recognize Christianity makes a lot of distinctions. It's interesting when you compare a Christian worldview to a Hindu or Buddhist worldview, one of the differences is that in Hinduism and Buddhism, there are no distinctions. The ultimate state in Hinduism and Buddhism is all distinctions are gone. In Christianity, the more you mature, the more you're able to make right distinctions. You're able to know, you know when is it that you weep 
And when is it that you rejoice? And over what? So as you begin to look at it, he's telling you to, to uh, be wretched, mourn, and weep. He's giving you now three distinctions you've got to be able to make. So let me offer you some ways to make these distinctions. The being wretched there has to do with being willing to suffer. And we know from, Je from James chapter 1 that suffering is good. Suffering is a way that God will purify and perfect us. So it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So be willing to be under God's hand of trial and tribulation, knowing he's working good in and through you. So that's a distinction. Most of us try to flee suffering. We try to flee pain. And, and only a masochist really wants it. But when God, when God orchestrates events and we are in a situation, we need to know he's there doing good. And we need to make the distinction that that goodness is why it's valuable to us. And we're not trying to get out from it as quick as we can. We're trying to learn everything we can, grow up through it. Then mourning. Uh, mourning has to do with uh, really mourning the sin that's in the body of Christ. And a great example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where you have a community of believers. And in that community of believers, you have a rank, rank sin. You have a man who is having an affair with his mother-in-law. It is just unbelievable sin. I mean, even the pagans would not put up with that. And yet the Christian community is doing nothing. They're allowing this, this couple to come and participate in the Christian community with no discipline, no correction. And so this word mourn that's used in James is the very word that's used in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, to when Paul says, should you not mourn this? You should be in mourning that this, this, this sin in the body of Christ, it is so out of order. And so that's a sense in which we need to understand this, I think. So we're commanded to mourn sin in the body of Christ. And obviously when we have authority, do deal with it, do something about it. And then weeping, this is a, this is a, a little different. This, this has to do with really our internal sin, our internal conviction. And a great example of where weeping is so appropriate was when Peter denied the Lord three times and that cock crowed and Peter looked at Christ and Christ looked at him. Peter ran off and it says he wept. The very same word that's in James chapter four is the word that's used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75. Peter wept. So this is an example of of how weeping is so appropriate. Weep for your internal failures, your internal sins, the things that you have done wrong. And then you mourn for those in the body of Christ who are living outside the truth. And you are wretched, and that is you stay within the trials and tribulations of life because you know God is working good in and through you. These are imperatives. This is the way we should be living as believers in Christ. He goes on to let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now that's again another one of those very challenging texts because again, we, we want to rejoice in the Lord and we should. There's a place for that. There's a place for peace. There's a place for joy. There's a place for just enjoying the presence of God, rejoicing in Christ. All of those are valid things, but there's also a place and time to mourn and recognize when sin is contaminating you and or those you're walking with, when sin is interfering 
are seemingly interfering with the purposes of God. These are things that should cause us to really go into a state of serious, serious reflection and repentance and seeking to bring things back into order. He goes on to say, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil. Now, this is, a, this is the last of the 11 here, this do not speak evil. The next to the last is humble yourself. Humble yourselves means get low. And this is a very interesting word because this is a, a, a verb. And the, um, you know, in the Greek language, you have... Um, you basically have the tenses, you have the voices, you have the mood. The voice, the active voice, is when the subject is doing the action. The passive voice is when the subject of the sentence is being acted upon. And then there's a middle voice. And the middle voice is when basically uh, you are, you're being empowered in some way to act. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting, that's the voice he uses here. So it's more like be humbled rather than you have the power. The power for humility doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It comes from the Holy Spirit now humbling us. So humble yourselves before the Lord. Submit to the Spirit. You know, be before God, humble, teachable, submitted. Allow him to do his work of chiseling on you. And when you do that, now we have this promise. This is our third promise. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He's not exalting you to feed your flesh. He's exalting you to exalt himself. You see, because a humble person never seeks exaltation. A humble person only seeks to serve the master. And now we have an example. The rest of the text is really an example of what humility looks like specifically applied to how you view people and how you speak about people. So we have the last imperative, do not speak evil, which is do not make a false accusation against one another. So that's the challenge. Can I, can I look at people and see them metaphysically? That is like God sees them. I want to see them through God's glasses and I want to treat them accordingly. And if I don't see them through God's glasses, what, what that means is I've made up my own glasses. When we make up our own glasses is we make up our own rules about how things ought to be. In other words, we decide what's right and wrong. And of course, you know that that's what Adam and Eve wanted to do when they fell. They wanted the right to do that. And so there's that inclination in all of us as heirs, as ancestors, as those who have been, are in the line of Adam and Eve and who have not been perfected yet, we have this tendency to want to think, what to define what right and wrong is. And so it shows up in how we view people and what we say about them. So we have this imperative, do not speak evil. Kataleo is the Greek word here, is to speak a false accusation. Don't do this against another brother. And now he turns to a very nice word way he refers to them. He calls them brothers now. He didn't, he didn't call them sinners. He didn't call them double-minded. He didn't call them adulteresses. He calls them a brother now. You see, he's used different terms depending on what he was trying to say. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. You see, when I don't adopt God's standards 
and I try to make up my own standards, I have become, I have presumed, you hear the word presumed, I am presuming to be the lawmaker and the judge. I'm very, very out of order. So when you do that, you put yourself above the law. Going on, he says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And you're judging the law. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and that is Christ. He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, you do not have standing. You do not have authority. You do not have the right to do this. And so one of the great, great signs of a humble person is they will not speak evil. That is, make a false accusation against a brother. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't recognize sin. We've got to make distinctions here. We've got to rightly divide the word of truth. It means I don't hold people to my standards. I'm looking for God to define the standards, and I am seeking to be his agent, his tool, to now weep and mourn and wail you know, for things that are inconsistent with God's standards. That's what he's calling for. We are here to be his agents of his standards. We're not here, and we don't have the right to make our own standards. So this is the challenge of walking humbly before God. This is what Christianity is. It is a tall, tall order, a life-changing, life-defining worldview that impacts everything in your life and requires for us to be very humble before God as his agents and his servants. So you can see we've had a number of imperatives in this text. And what I want to do real quickly is I want to synthesize this into a command. These 11 imperatives into basically one command and offer this command for your consideration. So here's the way I see it. A mark of wisdom is humility. Humility is seen through submission to and intimacy with God. Those who are intimate with Christ live with integrity as manifested by submission to the commands of God, that is his law. Remember, we're submitted to the commands of Christ because we have been saved, not to get saved. And proper use of the tongue. Such people realize that falsely accusing your brother is pride, presuming to be a law superior to God's law. So this is what I think is the essence of what he's trying to say in this text. Now let me give you some applications real quickly, just some th things to think about. Uh, first, relative to churches. Uh, I want to encourage all of us as church leaders to take a risk. We need to raise the bar above the chaplaincy model of church today that is so common. And the chaplaincy model basically says uh, it's okay for people to come be part of our community of believers. Uh, we're here to help you when you have a problem, when you need to get married, when you have, uh, you have a funeral or some other calamity in your life. You're in the hospital. We're here. We're here to help you and, and uh, you know, try to counsel with you as we can. But you can go live where you want to live. Now, that's the chaplaincy model. Now, I don't know of any pastor that actually verbalizes it that way but we do it non-verbally. We give people permission to connect very casually with us with no requirement to live aligned with Christ. So I think we need to be willing to take a risk and raise the bar. 
I know I'm looking at our own congregation, our own church, and our leadership team is looking at this very hard right now and realizing that that is the proper thing to do, but realizing it's a risk. And when you are paid by your congregation, here's the risk. If you start raising the bar and people start leaving, your income goes down and you probably can't afford all your staff. That's a big risk. So are you willing to go for truth, even if it puts your, your payroll online? That's a tough one. But I think that's part of what we're called to do. We're, we're called to step up and trust God. that we, we do the right things, then he will guide, he will direct. All right, the next thing is management. Uh, there's almost no understanding with anyone that I have ever worked with in the business world, and this is around the world, who really connects spiritual reality to physical reality. That is such a foreign concept. And so managers and business leaders do not think biblically by and large. And it is so hard to challenge them to think at this level. You have to start realizing that God is in the workplace and his principles apply. So I want to find people um, in, with whatever organization I'm with, I'm looking for people who are displaying more grace. Not just the grace for physical life, not just the grace of being regenerated and having some signs of being a baby Christian. I want people that really are getting humble before God. And as they're doing that, they are getting more grace, a deeper level of grace. Now, these are going to be great workers if they're doing what they're called to do. This is what the Strategic Life Alignment Training is all about, is to help you get on track with God to do His will according to His ways and experience more grace in every area of your life, including how you work. So getting that, that application in the workplace, to me, is one of the great challenges of today. We talked about SLA blocks frequently, and we talk about spiritual healing. Let me suggest to you the biblical basis for spiritual healing can be traced to this text right here, where it talks about, you know, you cannot, you have to resist the devil and he will free from you. So much of spiritual healing is about resisting the lies of the devil. Drawing near to God is about pressing into the truth of the word of God and living in that truth. These are, these are critical things that are part of spiritual healing. It's part of deliverance. And so uh, we have to recognize these imperatives are very, very relevant and gives us a biblical foundation for what we do in trying to help people get past the blocks of life to do move forward and press in to walk with Christ humbly before him. And finally, we have to really resist political correctness. Uh, we're in a culture today that presumes to be uh, the lawgiver and the judge. The culture presumes to be able to define things the way they want to define it, they have no sense that scripture provides the moral compass that we all need for life. There's no, no sense of that. And so consequently, we feel that we can, as a people, we can just make up any laws we want. We can redefine anything we want. So we're redefining, you know, when life begins. We're redefining what murder is. We redefine, you know, what, uh, what marriage is. We're redefining even what gender is. It just goes on and on and on where we're trying to redefine things. We're trying to function as the lawgiver and the judge. It will not go well. It will not go well for our culture. And certainly for those of us that live in these cultures, we will, we'll get the fallout too. 
So we need to stand up and be a voice of saying, no, there is a right way. In fact, the right way is through Christ. And there is a standard. It's called the Bible. And properly understood, it tells us how to live life and how to, be, how to enjoy the favor and blessing of God. So may we all have grace to step up and learn how to walk humbly before God and not be spiritual adulteresses, not be called sinners, and not be double-minded, but we walk in humility according to his will and his ways for his glory. May we have that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.